listening to the Bible 126 show. First and second Samuel, really the story of David and uh, his triumphs and his troubles and uh, one in the scripture that we can learn a lot from. David's a delight because on the one hand, he represents many exemplary aspects, and yet he's also real and tangible and has his foibles and stumbles and falls like all of us. And wouldn't it be neat if we could handle ourselves and our failures as well as David did when he, when he blew it? But in any case, uh, we're here with, uh, at the tail end of the, re- the revolt of Absalom, his son. There's probably no way that you and I can really relate to the grief and the anguish of David. Because on the one hand, he has his obligation as king and his responsibilities to the throne and to his destiny as the leader of Israel on the one hand, and yet here he is fighting to the death, actually, his own son. Tough time. Samuel told him that the sword would not depart from his house, and indeed it didn't. And uh, so we have the climax here. In chapter 18, the final big battle. And Absalom, with all the fuss and furor, has, is no match for David and Joab's generalship and also for a tight-knit, loyal, committed team. Uh, these men have been together through the wilderness days of Saul, through the Philistine escapades. These guys are pros, and it shows. Chapter 18, verse 1, David numbered the people who were with him and set the captains of the thousands and the captains of hundreds over them. In other words, he's getting organized. David sent forth a third part of the people under the hand of Joab and a third part under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and a third part under the hand of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said unto the people, I will surely go forth with you myself also. That's impressive. If any of you have been in the Marine Corps, you probably recognize the thirds here. Two up and one reserve, and, and who's the first off the, the ramp at the, on the first wave? The lieutenant comes off first, right? Well, here, okay, well, here's David with his people. Okay. Or at least he's going to try. Verse 3, The people answered, Thou shalt not go forth, for if we flee away, they will not care for us. Neither if half of us die will they care for us. But now thou art worth ten thousand of us. Therefore now it is better that thou send us aid from the city. And the king said unto them, What seemeth to you best I will do. And the king stood beside the gate, and the people came out by the hundreds and by the thousands. And king commanded Joab and Abishai and Atai, saying, Deal gently for my sake, uh, with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains orders concerning Absalom. Yeah, I don't know how that works. You know, I think we've had a lot of experience trying to do warfare with rules, huh? And uh, when you're in there, you go to win. But in any case, it's understandable. David is uh, anxious somehow to win, but without Absalom getting hurt. I don't know how he's going to pull that off. And, of course, Joab, his number two, will take care of that, um, as we'll see. Verse 6, so the people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was in the forest of Ephraim. Now, bear in mind, see, here is one of those places we have to be alert to, that Israel is used denotatively rather than connotatively. Uh, Words have a narrow or a broad meaning. We use the word Israel connotatively to mean the whole nation. But we also use the term narrowly or denotatively 
to refer to the northern group of tribes as in contrast to Judah. And usually when you speak of Judah, you usually include Benjamin and Simeon, but collectively the dominant uh, tribe is Judah. So Judah is synonymous with the southern half and the, uh, the term Israel, or in sometimes Ephraim is used connotatively. Ephraim would be used connotatively, Israel denotatively, but in either case for the approximately 10 tribes or so that represent the northern uh, constituency. So the battle was, uh, the, 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 the people went out in the field against Israel, and the battle was in the forest of Ephraim. And the people of Israel were slain before the servants of David, and there was, and there, was there a great slaughter that day of 20,000 men. For the battle was there scattered over the face of the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. The terrain was tough, and under battlefield conditions, a lot of men died just in the Logistics of the movements. Interestingly, more died that way than actually engage, you know, in, 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 uh, in engagement. But in any case, it's a slaughter. Verse 9, And Absalom met the servants of David. And Absalom rode upon a mule, and the mule went under the thick boughs of a great oak. And his head caught firmly in the oak, and he was suspended between the heaven and the earth. And the mule that was under him went away. <laughs> Don't you wish you were shooting a movie and had to do this scene? <laughs> Boy, does it have possibilities. Huh? And a certain man saw it and told Joab, and he said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said unto them who told him, And behold, thou sawest him, and why didst thou not smite him there to the ground? I would have given thee ten shekels of silver and a belt. The man said to Joab, Though I should receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, yet would I not put forth mine hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king charged thee and Abishai and Atai, in other words, the three commanders, saying, Beware that none touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise, I would have wrought falsehood against mine own life, for there is no matter hidden from the king, and thou thyself would have set thyself against me. In other words, he wasn't, this guy's mother didn't raise any dumb sons. Huh? Okay. By the way, this tradition, there's a tradition that Absalom was caught in this tree by his hair. And that tradition comes from Josephus, Antiquity 7, uh, uh, 239. It's also consistent with back, back in chapter 14 where we heard about his rather uh, abundant uh, uh, hairstyling. And uh, what was it, three and a half pounds a year? Was that the number? And uh, whatever. And uh, so in any case, uh, it's interesting, see, uh, uh, everybody looks at this as David's son, but Joab is a more pragmatic guy. He sees Absalom as the usurper, the enemy. This is the one that usurped the throne. This is the one that's the enemy of David and, in his mind, the enemy of Israel. So you don't mess around. So he's upset that this guy didn't take advantage of him and slay him. And, of course, the guy's showing some pretty good judgment. That's not a job he wanted to rise to the occasion of. So in verse 14, then said Job, I may not tarry thus with thee. And he took three staves in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. Anxious to meet Joab. You watch his exploits. He's a, he doesn't mess around. He's a, I guess he's a classical Israeli trooper. He's a, a tough guy. 
And ten young men who bore Joab's armor compassed about and smote Absalom and slew him. And Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing all Israel, for Joab held back the people. And they took Absalom and cast him into a great pit in the forest and laid a very great heap of stones upon him. And all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. Now these stones, it's interesting, they bury him in a pit. And you think they just bury him, but it's interesting that they cover him with stones. And some commentators note that in Deuteronomy 21, he would have been guilty of a punishment for stoning. So the stones may in that sense be reviewed, viewed as a symbolic. That's Deuteronomy 21, verses 20 and 21, for those of you who want to fill in your notes and check that out later. But we'll keep moving. Verse 18, Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and reared up for himself a pillar, which is in the king's dale. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name, and it is called unto this day Absalom's place. little historical footnote on the part of the, the scribe here. Now, we're going to encounter an interesting situation. We can understand David's grief. He lost his son. But very often in public life, his personal actions can damage the nation. And we're going to see here as we go in the next uh, uh, chapter or two how his grief for Absalom turned out to be very destructive for the country. It's very interesting how a person in leadership often has to be sensitive to the non-obvious implications of his conduct. We've had presidents of this country that were indecisive and that cost millions of lives. We've had uh, meaning well and good intentioned, but not understanding the accountability and responsibility of leadership, uh, and so on. So in this case, though, David uh, 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 does something that I think, on the one hand, is understandable at the personal level, but is surprising in terms of his, his uh, uh, accountability and the responsibility as a leader. Let's go on here. Verse 19, then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, uh, said, Let me now run and bear the king tidings, how the Lord hath avenged him of his enemies. <clears throat> now, Ahimaaz wanted to bear the tidings. He was anxious to do this. He wanted to tell the king the news. Joab is smarter than that. He, lets this, he wants this Cushite slave to do it because he doesn't know how the king is going to take the news. You know, it's good news and bad news, right? Good news is we won. The bad news is Absalom's dead. And it's a tough call. So Joab said unto him, Thou shalt not bear tidings this day, but thou shalt bear tidings another day. But this day thou shalt bear no tidings, because the king's son is dead. Then said Joab to the Cushite, Go tell the king what thou hast seen. And the Cushite bowed himself unto Joab and ran. And by the way, I want you to notice in verse 20 that the, that uh, Joab points out to him is that the king's son is dead. Ahimez is going to later faint, pretend he didn't know that, but uh, or he at least uh, feigns ignorance. But anyway, the Cushite about himself and ran. And then verse 22, then Ahimez, the uh, son of Zadok, said again to Job, But come what may, let me, I pray thee, also run after the Cushite. And Job said, Why wilt thou run, my son, seeing that thou hast no tidings ready? Words, what are you going to do when you get there? I mean, you're not the official messenger. But come what may, said he, let me run. And he said unto him, run. 
And Amaz ran by the way of the plain, and he outran the Cushite. A lot of us are like that, huh? More enthusiasm than mandate, huh? It's an interesting thing in our Christian walk. Opportunity is not mandate. You can make a study of that sometime. Opportunity is not mandate. The phone rings and a guy has a real neat opportunity. Does God want you to drive, you know, to follow up? Don't know. Gotta pray about it. The more worthwhile things that you can be proposed to, then you have the opportunity to deal with. Opportunity is not mandate. In any case. But anyways, wanted to do it, so he says, uh, you know, go do it. And he outruns the Cushite. And David sat between two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate unto the wall, and lifted up his eyes, and he looked, behold, a man running alone. That would be cause for optimism. There'd be a victory. Verse 25, And the watchman cried and told the king. The king said, If he be alone, there are tidings in his mouth. And he came apace and drew near. And the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called unto the porter and said, Behold, another man running alone. The king said, He also bringeth tidings. And the watchman said, I think the running of the foremost is like the running of the Maez, the son of Zadok. Interesting that he has a characteristic run. I don't know what he... I can only imagine what he ran like, but he's obviously distinctive, huh? The king said, He is a good man, and cometh with good tidings. And Amaz called, and said unto the king, All is well! And he fell down to the earth upon his face before the king, and said, Blessed be the Lord thy God, who hath delivered up the men that lifted up their hand against my lord the king. In other words, he gave him the good news that, Hey, king we won. Huh? Your enemies are defeated, in effect. The king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? Now, that was foremost in the king's mind. Or at least, maybe that's unfair, because he found out that, okay, we won. That probably is most concern, because after all, he is king. But having said that, his real concern, of course, is for his son. Even though his son has rebelled and led a, led a troop against him and all of that, David grieves for Absalom. Is the young man Absalom safe? David asks. And Amaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant and me thy servant, I saw a great tumult, but I knew not what it was. That's what some people would call BS. Other people, yeah, that stands for beautiful sayings, by the way. Uh, he knew what had happened. He's feigning ignorance. He knew back there in verse 20 that Absalom was dead, and he also, if he had any sensitivity at all, realized that that's why Joab didn't want him to go, because there's an uncertainty as to how David will take the news. And so uh, he pretends not to know what it was. In verse 30, the king said unto him, Turn aside and stand here. And he turned aside and stood still. And behold, a Cushite came. The Cushite said, Tidings, my lord the king, for the Lord hath avenged thee this day of all them who rose up against thee. The king said unto the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? And the Cushite answered, The enemies of my lord the king and all who rise against thee to do thee harm be as that young man is. Now the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God had I died for thee, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. That's pretty wild, isn't it? Here's a son who rebelled against him. 
not only turned against him personally, but turned the whole country against him. And yet David grieves over Absalom. In fact, he grieves so much over Absalom, it becomes a national problem. Chapter 19. You know, it's interesting, actually, just a, one other comment. And we make, I think we make this comment almost at the end of every other chapter. All this grief, all this grief that David feels, the pain, caused by what? Bathsheba. Or more precisely, the, uh, the whole business about Bathsheba and Uriah and so forth. Samuel warned him, the, son would not, the sword would not depart from his house. And indeed, that's true. Chapter 19, verse 1, it was told Joab, Behold, the king weepeth and mourneth for Absalom. And the victory that day was turned into mourning unto all the people, for the people heard that day how the king was grieved for his son. See, this should have been a day of victory. Hey, we won over our enemies. We've succeeded. That's what it's all about. But it becomes a day of mourning. The people are down. Verse 3, and the people went by stealth that day into the city, as people being ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. In other words, the people acted like they were guilty. People acted like they had lost. But the king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And Joab came into the house to the king and said, Thou hast covered with shame this day the faces of all thy servants, who this day have saved thy life and the lives of thy sons and of thy daughters and the lives of thy wives and the lives of thy concubines, in that thou lovest thine enemies and hatest thy friends. For thou hast declared this day that thou regardest neither princes nor servants. For this day I perceive that if Absalom had lived and we had all died this day, how it would please thee well. Joab didn't mess around, did he? Put it right on there. And he's right. That's what David's doing, in effect. Is it wrong to grieve for a son? Of course not. And yet, especially for someone in that kind of position, his actions impact everybody. And it's interesting, too, Joab makes the point here, you realize that if Absalom had won, all of David's house would have been in jeopardy. What would, what would the victor's first task be? To wipe out David's house. And that's why he says here, you see, you, you, uh, uh, we have saved not only thy life, but the lives of thy sons. See, they would be rivals. And thy daughters and the lives of thy wives and of the concubines. You love your enemies better than your friends. That's tough stuff. And to David's credit, of course, he rises to that occasion. So, so uh, verse 7, Now therefore arise, go forth, and speak kindly unto thy servants. For I swear by the Lord, if thou would go not forth, there will not tarry one with thee this night. And that will be with thee... Now, that will be worse than with, unto thee than all the evil that befell thee from thy youth until now. In other words, this whole thing is really explosive. Really explosive. 
We've got major political disorder brewing, as you'll see here shortly. David will be restored to the kingdom. But even then, there's another revolt that takes place. It's put down pretty quickly by uh, uh, Sheba. We'll see that in the, you know, the next chapter. But even though he's conquered, he, he has, he has uh, had the victory over Israel, that is the northern group and, the, and Absalom, there's a big job ahead to regather consent, to establish order in the land, and to uh, restore his kingdom. Verse 8, Then the king arose and sat in the gate, and they told, and they told unto all the people, saying, Behold, the king doth sit in the gate, and all the people came before the king, for Israel had fled every man to his tent. In other words, they all went home. And all the people were at strife throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king saved us out of the hand of our enemies, and he delivered us out of the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land on account of Absalom. And Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why speak ye not a word of bringing the king back? And the king David sent to Zadok and to Bithar the priest, saying, Speak unto the elders of Judah, saying, Why are ye the last to bring the king back to his house, seeing the speech of all Israel has come to, this, uh, to the king, even to his house? So we've got the, 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 the mood starting to raise these issues. Okay, what a mess. But after all, David is the king both by right, but also by his deeds. And you're going to start seeing uh, the supporters uh, uh, move here to try to uh, uh, secure the, uh, uh, the uh, situation. Now, uh, the, uh, the elders are, in the verse 11, are a little reluctant because they had a part in Absalom's rebellion, so they're not sure what's in, short, in, uh, in store for them. Verse 12, ye are my brethren, and ye are my bones and my flesh. Why then are ye the last to bring back the king? And say ye to Amasa, art thou not of my bone and of my flesh? God, do so to me, and more also, if thou be not captain of the host before me, continue in the place of Joab. Oh boy. Here is Absalom's commander, who is going to be replacing Joab. That's surprising. It's a shrewd political move because that's his way of trying to secure the rebel alliance. It's also his way of giving Joab discipline for having killed Absalom. Now, this guy does not have much of a military track record. And when a rebellion shows up here in the next chapter, he's going to be a little slow in getting organized. Joab fixes that. <laughs> As we'll see. <laughs> Joab doesn't fool. I'm really anxious to meet Joab. This guy's a tough, tough dude. I know he was in the Corps. I know he was in the Corps. <laughs> uh, verse 14. And he bowed the heart of all the men of Judah, even as the heart of one man, so uh, that they sent his this word unto the king, Return thou and all thy servants. In other words, they welcome him back. Judah is... is uh, is uh, you know on this one. So the king returned and came to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the uh, to go to meet the king to conduct the king over the Jordan. Now there's a political thing here. They didn't give the Israel the, the northern tribes time to join this, so they're going to be a little resentful that they weren't given the opportunity that this was sort of uh, you know upstaged by Judah. But we'll we'll deal with that when we get there. Um. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, who was of uh, 
Bahurim hastened and came down uh, with the men of Judah to meet King David. This is the character that was cursing, remember, in chapter 16? And uh, he's going to apologize, and his life will be spared temporarily. Things are very contingent in those days. <laughs> contingent upon his continued loyalty, and we'll discover in First Kings 2 that apparently he didn't quite measure up because on his deathbed, King David says, kill him. And they do. But in any case, <laughs> in any case Shemaiah, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, who was of Barum, hastened to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and uh, uh, Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his 15 sons and his 20 servants uh, with them. And they went over the Jordan before the king. And there went over a ferry boat to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. And Shemaiah, the son of Gera, fell down before the king uh, when he was uh, come over the Jordan and, the king, and said unto the king, Let not my lord impute iniquity unto me, neither do thou remember that which thy servant did perversely the day that my lord the king went out of Jerusalem, that the king should take it to his heart. Oh, really, guy? Seems to me he was uh, traipsing up along the ridges and continuing that whole thing. Um, and I think, wasn't it the job that was going to say, let's knock this guy off? And David said, no, hold your peace. Remember? Remember all of that. Back in chapter 16, we can do that later. And uh, he continues, For thy servant doth know that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I am come the first this day of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my lord the king. Now, when he says the house of Joseph, by the way, uh, that's an idiom really for the northern tribes because Joseph was Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh, you know, remember the half, you know, they on the other side. So Ephraim becomes, this is a way of referring to Ephraim, and Ephraim becomes connotatively a label for the, for the house of Israel. And so Shemaiah is hoping by being the first of, of that, that, that group to acknowledge here that he might uh, gain some favor. And uh, so verse 21, And Baisha, the son of Zerai, answered and said, Shall not Shemaiah be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David said, What have I to do with you, ye sons of Zariah? that ye should this day be adversaries unto me. Shall there be any man be put to death this day in Israel? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? In other words, I know it. Therefore the king said unto Shemaiah, Thou shalt not die. And the king swore unto him. Now it's implied here, by the way, that that isn't without conditions. It's not detailed here, but that presumes continued loyalty. And we infer from the later record in First Kings that there seems to be some impediments to his continuing in that <laughs> in that uh, protection, if you will. Verse 24, And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and had neither dressed his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes, from the day that the king departed until the day he came again in peace. And it came to pass, when he was come to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said unto him, Why wentest not thou with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant, deceived me. For thy servant said, I will saddle an ass that I may ride on it and go to the king because thy servant is lame. And he hath slandered thy servant unto my lord the king, but my lord the king is as an angel of God. Do therefore what is good in thine eyes. Remember, Ezeba had accused him of being disloyal. And here Mephibosheth denies that. He apparently was slandered. It's going to turn out that David didn't quite believe him. Was he right or wrong? We don't know. We'll come to this. 
goes on, verse 20, For all of my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. Yet thou didst set thy servant among them who did eat at thine own table. What right therefore have I yet to cry any more unto the king? And the king said unto him, Why speakest thou any more of thy, matter, of, of thy matters? I have said thou and Ziba divide the land. And Mephibosheth said unto the king, let, Yea, let him take all, for as much as my lord the king is come again in peace into his, unto his own house. And it goes on. It may be surprising. Here's Mephibosheth in traditional mourning, but he's rebuffed by David. The estate is divided between him and Zeba. In other words, the, the servant and him. And um, there's three possibilities here. It's a very strange decision on the part of David, but it implies at least one that um, David didn't believe that Mephibosheth was innocent. He proclaims it here, and but David apparently uh, doesn't buy into that. Alternatively, um, by the way, it's also a lot of these are reflexive back to chapter 16. So, uh, the, the innocence of Mephibosheth, you refer to chapter 16, verse 3. But David also might be repaying Ziba for his kindness, again from the first few chapters of chapter 16. But there's a third possibility that none of the commentators really deal with, and that is it may have been a bad decision. It doesn't mean that David was right. He's like anybody else. He may have taken time to really hear the facts, and he just divided the estate between the two, partly because maybe he didn't believe Mephibosheth, partly because he wanted to repay Ziba for his kindness, or it may have just been that he's a hurry and didn't take the time to really deal with it. That's possible. It's not, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, could be just a poor judgment on the part of David. So it's hard to read much into that. We don't have much more visibility than we've got here. Okay. Verse 31. And Barzillai, the Gileadite, came down from Rogelim and uh, went over the Jordan with the king to conduct him over the Jordan. Now this was the guy that provided the needs of David at uh, Menanim when he was in exile in chapter 19. Remember when he went in exile there for a while? He, he uh, was taken care of, and this is one of the guys that took care of him. Verse 32, now Barzilla was a very aged man, even fourscore years old, and he provided the king with sustenance while he lay at Mahanaim, for he was a very great man. The king said to Barzillai, come thou over with me, and I will feed thee with me in Jerusalem. In other words, the king offers, because of this kindness, offers to set him up in Jerusalem. But he's getting old, and he wants to stay home. So we find in uh, verse 34, Barzilla then said unto the king, how long have I lived that I should go up with the king into Jerusalem? I am this day fourscore years old. Can, can I discern between good and evil? Can thy servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any more the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should I should thy servant be a burden unto my lord the king? The servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king, and why should the king recompense me with such a reward? Let thy servant, I pray thee, turn back again, that I may die in mine own city and be buried by the grave of my father and my mother. But behold, thy servant... Uh, Chimham, let him go over with my lord the king, and do to him what shall seem good unto thee. And the king answered, Chimham shall come over with me, and I will do to him that which shall seem good to thee, and whatsoever thou shalt require of me, that will I do for thee. And all the people went over the Jordan, and the, when the king was come over, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he, he returned to his own place. And then the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah conducted the king and also half the people of Israel. So he's retracing, incidentally, interesting enough, he's retracing the steps of Joshua. Remember when he crossed over the Jordan, he made his camp at Gilgal at the same, same turf. 
But again, uh, Judah is sort of the prominent players here, and Israel represents this, as we'll see in verse 41. Behold, all the men of Israel came to the king and said, O king, why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen thee away and have have brought the king and his household and all David's men with him over the Jordan? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is near of kin to us, why then are ye angry for this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's cost? Or hath he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten parts in the king, and we have also more right in David than ye. Why then did ye despise us than that our advice should not be first had in bringing back our king? And the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So there we have a little ethnic thing going on. And you, I'm sure you've all heard the expression, you have two Jews, three opinions. And... Uh, so they're fighting over over their you know the tribal uh, uh, predicaments, but uh, this is the, the loyalty of Israel is going to be very short lived. We'll see in chapter twenty. We're going to have, there's going to be another small rebellion churning things up here a little bit. Okay. <clears throat> now there happened to be there a worthless fellow. <laughs> We seem to have a lot of worthless fellows of a baser sort. Hmm? That's where was that? That was Axe that we ran into that with. Yeah. I've tried that in traffic. It doesn't really quite have the effect. But anyway, when we were in the Book of Acts, I resolved to use that. I thought that was a good expression for traffic. Anyway, anyway, there happened to be a worthless fellow whose name was Sheba, the son of uh, Bichri, the Benjamin, Benjaminite. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no part in David, neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. This every man to his tents becomes sort of the watchword, the byword, the banner under which this rebellion goes. It sort of implies what the the tone of it is. We miss it here, but what, what apparently is implied is let's go home and resist the king there. In other words, every man to his tents. In other words, uh, let's just... Let's go home and, and, and dig in, so to speak. Resist. It's a resistance uh, tone here. Every man who was tenth, or Israel. So every man of Israel withdrew from following David and followed Sheba, the son of Bechre. And the men of Judah remained steadfast toward their king and from the Jordan even to Jerusalem. So the tensions continue. Huh? This whole spirit of rebellion. We see it with Absalom. We see it uh, with uh, Sheba. And obviously, after uh, Solomon dies, the big one, the big rebellion, the big split occurs. So we see its roots here already. Verse 3, And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took ten women, excuse me, ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep house, and put them in confinement, and fed them, but went not in unto them. So they were shut up unto the day of their death, living in widowhood because of their being defiled by, Ab- by Absalom. Remember, when Absalom took occasion to, uh, to insult David by that whole debacle on the, on the uh, rooftops in the side of Israel, uh, David uh, probably had very little choice. He probably felt that way personally, but certainly as a, as a formal uh, step of state. He uh, sealed them off and let them uh, you know, uh, finish out their life living in widowhood. Tough, tough stuff. Tough stuff. 
So these uh, concubines are isolated. Okay, and then the king said to Amasa, Assemble the men of Judah within three days, and be thou here also present. In other words, to deal with this rebellion of Sheba. The, the rebellion of Sheba shouldn't be hard to deal with. It's, it's just beginning, and David wants to handle it quickly. Verse 5, So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he tarried longer than the set time which he had appointed him. In other words, uh, the king gave him three days. Get it organized? Let's get on with it. Muster troops, number them, organize it, go on. Remember how David did? Set up his, when he went up against Absalom. Absalom, it was quick, sharp, professional. Amasa apparently tarries. Verse 6, so David said to Abishai, Now call Sheba the son of Bechri and uh, do us more harm than did Absalom. Excuse me, now shall Sheba do us more harm than did Absalom. Take thou thy Lord's servants and pursue after him, lest he get for himself fortified cities and escape us. And they went out after him Joab's men, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. And they went out of Jerusalem to pursue after Sheba, the son of Bechri. <clears throat> when they were at the great stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa went before them, and Joab's garment that he had put on his put on was uh, girded unto him, and upon it a belt with a sword fastened upon his loins in its sheath. As he went forth, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Art thou in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard and with, uh, with the right hand to kiss him. That was a standard kind of greeting in that culture. Grab him by the beard and, and kiss him. Well, but I'd watch out for guys like Job. Job said to Manasseh, Art thou in health, my brother? Job's going to fix his health here shortly. Joab took Amasseh by the beard and the right hand to kiss him, but Amasseh took no heed to the sword that was in Joab's hand. So he smote him in the fifth rib and shed out his inward parts to the ground and struck him not again. And he died. And Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bechri. And one of Joab's men stood by him and said, who, He who favored Joab, and he who is for David, let him go after Joab. And Amasa wallowed in his own blood in the center of the highway. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, he removed Amasa out of the highway into the field and cast a cloth upon him, when he saw that everyone who came by him kept standing there. When he was removed out of the highway, the people went on after, the, after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. So they've got their, uh, you know, gawkers even then, I guess. <laughs> Amasa wasn't too bright. He wasn't very quick to get organized. He had the mandate. He should have run with it. But also he should understand that he was the one that displaced Joab. Joab was a seasoned professional. And uh, uh, so, you, you know, that's what happened. <laughs> Joab took care of it. Man of action. Verse 14. So he went through all the tribes of Israel unto Abel and to uh, Beth uh, Mekah, and that is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, to give you a rough feeling of the geography here. Then all the Barites, and they gathered together, and he went also after them. And they came and besieged in Abel uh, of Beth uh, Mekah, the, uh, and they cast up a mound against the city and, st and stood in the rampart, and all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. 
In other words, they're laying siege, classical siege techniques. But there's a woman that um, simplifies the whole program for us. Then cried out, uh, cried a wise woman out of the city. In other words, visualize the picture now. The rebels have retreated in the city. Joab and the troops are there. They're going to tear the city down. Take them a little while, but they're at it. You and I have no capacity to really understand that kind of terror in those days. Where you live in a city and one day you wake up and there's a mass of troops out there. And uh, the whole city's in jeopardy. So this gal takes matters in her own hands to try to simplify things. This whole idea of siege technology, if you're interested in historical reading, is pretty interesting stuff. You know, the, later on, after this period, the Romans had a neat way of laying siege. They would show up on the horizon, prepared to seal off the city and camp there for 20 years if necessary. Just, when they say seal it off, they meant seal it off. And uh, it's really fascinating to read uh, some of the... Uh, the uh, ancient techniques. But in any case, here we are. They are laying siege uh, to this um, um, city. And this woman um, cries out, Here, here, I say, I pray you unto Joab, come near here that I may speak with thee. This gal's got uh, an ethnic characteristic that's known as chutzpah. And when he was come near unto her, the woman said, Art thou Joab? He answered, I am he. She said unto him, Hear the words of thine handmaid. And he answered, I do hear. Then she spoke, saying, They were accustomed to speak in the olden times, saying, They shall surely ask counsel at Abel. So, and so they ended the matter. I am one of them who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. Thou seekest to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why wilt thou swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? What she's saying when she says mother, she, she really means a mother city in Israel. Why would you destroy a mother city in Israel? And uh, uh, the other thought that's going to be in here is the whole, he, he failed to offer, she's going to challenge him, failed to offer peace after Deuteronomy tw- chapter 20, verse 11. Normally when you lay siege, you make offer terms of peace, give them a chance before you nail it down. Verse 20, Joab answered and said, Uh, Far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. The matter is not so. But a man of Mount Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri, by name, hath lifted up his hand against the king, even against King David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. And the woman said unto Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to thee over the wall. (laughs) She apparently understood Joab pretty well. Then the woman went unto all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and cast it out to Joab. Then he blew a trumpet, and they retired from the city, and every man to his tent, and Joab returned to Jerusalem and to the king. <laughs> Boy, they sure... <laughs> yeah, quick, but what a, what a practical answer. They got what they wanted, and they saved... Think of the lives they've saved, and the city. Interesting. Verse 23, now Joab was... Uh, uh, no, I hope I didn't hear that. What? How to get ahead in Israel? Oh boy! Oh boy! And you, how to get ahead in Israel? How to get ahead in Israel? Did you get that? How to get? 
That's one even I didn't rise up to right there. I, I think the scribe should record that that was not mine. <laughs> How to get ahead in Israel. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> you could tell it was going to be one of those nights, couldn't you? <laughs> I have lost my place. Yeah. <laughs> Verse 23. Now Joab was over all the host of Israel, and Benai the son of Jehida was over the Cherethites and over the Pelethites, and Adoran was over the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat the son of Elihud was the was recorder, and Sheba was scribe, and Zadok and Biathar were the priests, and Ira the uh, Jairite was the chief assistant to David. So what we've got here in these last few verses is a list of his chief officers. And uh, it's pretty interesting here. The, by the Adoram here is the Adoram of uh, 1 Kings 4, but that's not a big deal. But the main point is, you notice it makes reference to forced labor. And there was forced labor. You and I, don't, we don't generally dwell on that, but there was. And remember in 1 Samuel 8, that's exactly what Samuel had predicted would happen. You guys want a king? And he recounts all the penalties, the adverse effects of having a king. And among those was the whole idea of forced labor. David had forced labor. And uh, Adoram was over the forced labor. No big deal other than to recognize it was there. And it is a fulfillment of Samuel's prophecy that that kind of thing would would happen. Okay, now we get into a little more complicated thing. Um, Chapters 21 through 24 are like an appendix to the book of Second Samuel. It's sort of an appendix to his career. We're going to recount some things here that didn't happen after verse uh, chapter 20. They're sort of details that happened earlier. And uh, there's reason to believe, for an example, chapter 21 probably occurred very early in David's reign for some technical reasons, scholars Believe that. In other words, it's not necessarily in chronological order. It's sort of a recap. We're going to deal with about three things that David had to deal with. One was, we're going to discover in chapter 21 and also chapter 24, there were plagues and famines. And, 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 and David will begin to realize that in this case that they were judgment, and he had to figure out why God was judging Israel and deal with it. Chapter 22 will have a praise. And, uh, and then we'll also deal with the temple and so forth. So this is sort of a, the way to view it, I think, is just view it as an appendix to the book, where we just clean up some loose ends. But one of the things that happened, uh, we're going to have a famine, and, and Israel will be judged, and, and David's got to figure out why they're being judged. It'll turn out the reason they're being judged is because the Gibeonites were slaughtered. Back in Joshua, uh, chapter 9, if you recall, through some chicanery, they were able, the Gibeonites were able to get a treaty of protection. Now, admittedly, they snookered the Israelites, but still they made a treaty and God expected them to honor it. When Saul was in his zeal to get rid of the heathen in the land, he apparently slaughtered some of the Gibeonites, and that was breaking the treaty. So God was holding them to keep the treaty, and we're going to find that Israel is under judgment, and it's up to David to make restitution. And this whole passage is going to raise more questions than it answers, but at least be ready for it. Chapter 21. 
Then there was famine in the, in the days of David, three years, year after year. See, having a famine for a year, you got a bad crop, that's one thing. But three years in a row starts to become disastrous. And David is sensitive enough to realize that this doesn't happen but by God's ordination. So for some reason, God is judging Israel and he wants to know why. So what does he do? As David does, David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, it is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. Saul and his bloody house. That's going to be a phrase we'll come back to. It may turn out to be very important. Verse 2, the king called the Gibeonites and said to them, See, now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn unto them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. In other words, this, this uh, 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 agreement was back Joshua before the conquered, you know, in the early days of, of, of the conquest. Wherefore David said unto the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? Wherewith shall I make atonement, or maybe more precisely, restitution? that ye may bless the inheritance of the Lord. In other words, okay, you know, uh, we should have done that. We did. How do we fix it? And uh, Restitution, by the way, Numbers 35.31 implies that if you make restitution, it's a life for a life. Okay? That's what they're after. And... Uh, Giving that said unto him, we, shall, we will have no silver nor gold of Saul, nor of his house, neither for us shalt thou kill any, neither for us shalt thou kill any man in Israel. And he said, What ye shall say, that will I do for you. And he answered the king, As for the man who consumed us, and who devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the borders of Israel, let seven of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. And the king said, I will give them. So they asked for seven sons of Saul, and David agrees. Now, by the way, when they say sons, I should remind you that in the ancient languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, Chaldean, there is no son, there is no word for grandson or, or you know, grandfather, Father's sons are not not adjacent necessarily. You follow me? But a, a, son, a grandson or a great grandson is still a son, as far in the language. So when they say seven sons, it's seven sons. Um, also, when they say hang, don't think of hanging as being specific. What they mean is exposing the bodies after they're killed. That was a sign of disgrace. Uh, that shows up in Numbers twenty-five, verse four, among other places. So it's, the idea is that they want, they want seven of the offspring killed, and they're going to make a, a ceremonial example there. Now, Mephibosheth is going to be spared for obvious reasons. Remember, he was the crippled son of Jonathan, and David had made commitments there. So Mephibosheth is spared. Don't be confused, because there's another Mephibosheth that happens to have the same name. And uh, Mephibosheth is being spared because of 1 Samuel 18.3 and Chapter 20, verses 8 and 16, which you recall. So uh, this is not the, you're going to see a Mephibosheth, but that's not the Mephibosheth you think it is, okay? So what they're going to do, what David's going to give them is the two sons of Rizpah, which is Saul's concubine, and five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul. So these aren't sons of Saul, they're grandsons, if you will, okay? 
Okay. Um, verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them and between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. But the king took two sons of Ritzpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore unto Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the, the, see, those are, that's a different Mephibosheth. That's the Mephibosheth. See, if you read this just casually, it's real confusing, because here's Mephibosheth spared, and then one verse later he's nailed. See, it's a different Mephibosheth. And the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, and here again we've got a scribal problem. The King James Version has Michael, but you'll discover that that's an error. It's actually Merab. The Septuagint and some of the Hebrew manuscripts make that clear. It happens that your King James is a victim of a scribal error here. Not a big deal, but just if you're trying to unravel it, it can be tricky. Anyway, it's Merab, the daughter of Saul, who, whom she brought up from Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in a hill before the Lord. And they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of the harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, Rispah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for her upon a rock from the beginning of the harvest until water dropped upon them out of heaven and allowed neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. So you appreciate this. It was, it was, it was prescribed, by the way, in Deuteronomy 21 that the dead were to be spared, buried the same day. They were not supposed to lie overnight. They let these bodies lie there from the barley harvest, read that April, until the first rains in October. That's a long time to be mourning, and, and I mean, that's, you miss that, you know, just casual reading. The barley harvest is early, like April. And, of course, until you see the, uh, the, um, uh, the water dropped upon them out of heaven, in other words, the first rains, which occur later. And allowed neither the birds of the air to rest upon them or the beasts of the field by night. And it was told David what Rispa, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done. So David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabbath-Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them, uh, when the Philistines had slain Saul and Gilboa. And he brought them from there, to the, and the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, and he gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And the bones of Saul and Jonathan's son buried they in the country of Benjamin and Zelah in the sepulcher of Kish, his father, and they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God was entreated for the land. Now, all kinds of problems. First of all, this also times it. See, this had apparently happened then approximately at the time that Saul was killed. Do you follow me? We read that before, but we didn't get into all this detail about the Gibeonites. This is sort of a footnote or an endnote or something. But there's some interesting problems here. Because in the Old Testament, the children are not supposed to be punished for the sins of the father. And you find that Deuteronomy 24, 16, 2 Kings 14, 6, um, also in Ezekiel 18, verses, first four verses, and also verses 14 through 17. So that's an Old Testament principle. So now the question is, gee, did David do wrong? You would think so, applying the Torah to this. Except God accepts it. See, God was entreated for the land. In other words, the famine was relieved. There was famine until this was taken care of. Once it's taken care of, the famine's gone. So what's the solution to this? 
a lot of commentators have wrestled with this because it seems strange, except they're overlooking one obvious thing. Remember back there it said, Saul, the Lord said, Saul and his bloody house. What everybody overlooks is the possibility that these seven were implicated in the slaughter of the Gibeonites. It wasn't Saul personally, follow me? And so that's the implication here because because God does, in fact, um, honor what they've done, interestingly enough. So, uh, so much for that messy business. Now, I'd like to take you back. Many of you remember this, but just in case you don't, you all know the story of David and Goliath, the small lad taking on this Philistine giant. We all know the story. And, uh, you know, uh, we've all been through all of that back there in, what is it, First Samuel 17. And um, as you know, I think you all remember, I'm very fond of pointing, David, when he goes up against uh, Goliath, rejects using Saul's armor. He hasn't, he's not skilled that way, he's not a professional military guy, it's bigger than he is, it doesn't make sense. So he rejects all that and takes the weapon that he's familiar with as a boy, namely a slingshot. And he picks up five stones and goes after Goliath. And how many stones does it take to bring Goliath down? One. So why did David bring have five stones? Didn't he have faith in God? It wasn't one enough. And the answer, of course, is here in Second Samuel, chapter end of chapter twenty-one. And it's a very surprise. It's amazing to me. I find it amusing how many people who really know their Bible, if you ask them why did David pick up five stones. They look at you bewildered. Never occurred to them, you know. David had such great faith, one stone's enough. He had five stones. And the answer is that Goliath had four brothers. And I love that. Boy, does that give you an insight into David. He didn't go against Goliath. He went against all five of them. I mean, bring them all on, guys. He didn't take six stones. There were only five of them. <laughs> I do think I understand why David and Joab got along so well. <laughs> so that's your little quiz when you're in a biblical group and so forth and trading stories. That, you know, bring up the story of Goliath and ask him, uh, you know, do the whole build up and ask him why did David pick up five stones and, and you have some fun with that because just remember that it's in First Samuel 17 the story of Goliath Second Samuel 21 is the story of the, uh, the how David's uh, lieutenants take care of, now this is of course later but they knock off the other four and uh, it's amazing by the way how many commentators also miss the details as you get into this but anyway uh, verse 15, more of the Philistines had yet war again with Israel. And David went down and the servants with him and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew faint. And ish be benob boy, that's a, I like Goliath better. It's easier to say. Who was of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze in weight, or say seven and a half pounds. It's like a, you know, this spear is like a shot put. And he, uh, being girded with a new sword, thought of slaying David. And in our vernacular, hey, fella, don't even think about it. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and smote the Philistine and killed him. 
And then the men of David swore unto him, saying, Thou shalt go no more out with us to battle, that thou quench not the light of Israel. Who's the light of Israel? David. So what they're saying, hey, David, we've got to protect you. You don't go out there anymore. Because that's what drew the giant into, into uh, the opportunity here. And it came to pass after this that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. And uh, Sibachai, the Hushathite, slew Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. And there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines where Elahanan, the son of Jerry, or whatever, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, 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 some of those even I won't try. But anyway, he's a Bethlehemite, slew the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Now, by the way, there is a textual problem, but we know it's the, the rendering of the brother is corroborated by First Chronicles chapter 20, verse 5. So this is the brother of Goliath. And there was yet a battle in Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had on every hand six fingers and every foot six toes, four and twenty in number. And he also was born to the giant. And when he defied Israel, Jonathan the son of Shemai, the brother of David, slew him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Interesting. Four brothers of Goliath, and uh, several of them have names, and then there's the other, there, you know, there's two others. Or I, yeah, it's a interesting, interesting th- thing, especially when you recognize that David uh, coming up against Goliath in the first place had five stones in his pocket. I think that's, I think that's kind of fun. I, uh, maybe I'm just weird. Huh? That's what Romaine says. Well, very early in my my ministry career, uh, way, uh, you know, Romaine recognized. Uh, very per se, he has a gift of discernment. Mister, Mister, he's weird. And said it to my wife about twenty years ago. I've never let him forget it. Not that he's not correct, but anyway. Anyway, chapter twenty-two. Chapter 22 is a song of deliverance, a psalm. It shouldn't surprise us. We have to have at least, here we got the life of David in two books, First and Second Samuel. We have to have at least one psalm in here. Out of uh, uh, 150 psalms, how many did David write? Close to half, 73. Mm-hmm. Now, we use the term praise. What does praise mean? It has to be something you declare publicly. Praise implies the term to be declared publicly. And there are usually two kinds of praise. Descriptive praise and declarative, declarative praise. Descriptive praise has to do with the attributes of God. And many psalms are of descriptive praise. Then there are declarative praise, and that's where you deal with God's deeds. Not his attributes, his deeds. And that's what this is. This is more of the declarative. The events of chapter 22 are probably based on 1 Samuel 23. Just a, it's a, at least assumed so by the, the you know, the students of, of the life of David. Okay. So we'll just uh, 
Jump in. David spoke unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord hath delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my rock. In him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my Savior. Thou savest me from violence. It's interesting when you're really under trial, when God really pushes you to the edge. Boy, do you get familiar with the Psalms. And I'm not being cute. I mean it very sincerely. You wear out the pages of Romans 8, but the Psalms are an incredible comfort. And as part of your spiritual growth, don't be surprised if the Lord does that to you. brings you to the edge. We're different ones of us. It's a different kind of edge. But God does that for lots of reasons, not the least of which is our own growth. And... Uh, it gives a whole new meaning when they say no pain, no gain. Huh? But uh, you really get acquainted with the Psalms. And David did. Boy, David was in threat of his life during, those, during his youth. Saw it with a king on his case, fleeing in the wilderness. So he can speak from, he, he, he can speak from experience. Verse 4, and I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from mine enemies. When the waves of death compassed me and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid, the sorrows of Sheol compassed me about, the snares of death came upon me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God, and he did hear my voice out of his temple, and, did, and my cry did enter into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled, and the foundations of heaven moved and shook, because he was angry. There went up smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down, and darkness was under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and did fly, and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. And he made darkness pavilions round about him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Through the brightness before him were coals of fire kindled. And the Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. And the channels of the sea appeared, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuking of the Lord at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from above, and he took me, and he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They came upon me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands hath he recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his ordinances were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also upright before him, and I have kept myself from mine iniquity. Therefore the Lord hath recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my clean, cleanness in his, in his eyesight. Aha, that's the key, isn't it? Is this David sinless? Of course not. 
But is he righteous in God's eyes? Yes. With the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. And with the upright man, thou shalt show thyself upright. In other words, God is loyal to those who are loyal to him. Huh? With, with the pure, thou wilt show thyself pure. And with the perverse, thou wilt show thyself perverse. And the afflicted people thou wilt save, but thine eyes are upon the haughty, that thou mayest bring them down. Contrast between David and Saul. David was afflicted, and God protected him. Saul was proud, and God brought him down. Verse 29. For thou art my lamp, O Lord, the Lord will lighten my darkness. For by thee I have run through a troop for my God have I leaped over a wall. By my God, excuse me, by my God have I leaped over a wall. Now, incidentally, you can make a whole study. I, I, think, I think you destroy some of the Psalms by annotating and tearing them apart. I think what really is in here is the flow of thought that's here. But, for example, if you want to take, like, leaping over a wall, that if you, those of you that are astute students of Genesis may remember Genesis chapter 49 and the strange riddles that Jacob gives the 12 tribes and that over a wall. If you don't know what I'm talking about, get the Genesis tapes, chapter 49. Verse 31. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all them that trust in him. For who is God except the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? God is my strength and power, and he maketh my way complete or perfect. He maketh my feet like hinds feet, and he setteth me up on high places. He teacheth my hands to war, so that a bow of bronze is broken by mine arms. Boy, that's interesting. He teacheth my hands to war. Boy, can that generate some after-dinner discussion. Huh? Verse 36, Thou hast also given me the shield of thy salvation, and thy gentleness hath made me great. Thou hast enlarged my steps under me, so that my feet did not slip. I have pursued mine enemies and destroyed them, and turned not again until I had consumed them. And I have consumed them and wounded them, and they could not arise. Yea, they are fallen under my feet. Thou hast girded me with strength to battle. Those who rose up against me hast thou subdued under me. Thou hast also given me the necks of mine enemies, that I might destroy them who hate me. They looked, but there was none to save, even unto the Lord. But he answered them not. Wow. Think about that one. They looked even unto the Lord, but he answered them not. You mean God plays favorites? You betcha. And who is God's most favorite? His own son, Jesus Christ. And that's why you can understand the abundance that's ours if we abide in him. Strange ideas, but very, very scriptural. Verse forty-three. Then, I, then did I beat them as a uh, beat them as small as the dust of the earth. I did stamp them as the mire in the street, and did spread them abroad. Thou also hast delivered me from the strivings of my people. Thou hast kept me to be head of the nations. 
people whom I knew not shall serve me. Foreigners shall submit themselves unto me. As soon as they hear, they shall be obedient unto me. Foreigners shall fade away, and they shall be afraid coming out of their forts. The Lord liveth and blessed, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of the rock of my salvation. It is God who avengeth me, and who bringeth down the people under me, and who bringeth me forth from mine enemies, and who has lifted me up on high above them who rose up against me. And thou hast delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks unto thee, O Lord, among the nations, and I will sing praises unto thy name. He is the tower of salvation for his, for his king, and showeth mercy to his anointed, unto David, and to his seed forevermore. It's interesting how this one chapter summarizes the tone of so many psalms. There are psalms that are praise. There are psalms that are what they call the pregatory psalms, the ones that call, you know, things down on their enemies. You can go through the psalms and make dozen, you know, a dozen categories. The psalms have tone, have a theme or a tone. This one is interesting to me because it seems to be a capsule of them all. It's a, it's a capsule of them all. And, of course, obviously some of the language is uh, poetic or emotional, typical Hebrew kind of poetry, on the other hand, uh, and, and also embraces a broad sweep of ideas here, from Sinai all the way through David's literal reign. But uh, a psalm. It's interesting, too, how again and again in the Psalms and in here, we hear God spoken of as a rock, as a rock. First Corinthians 10 and elsewhere. It's an interesting study. Take a concordance sometime and take stone or rock or both and trace their references throughout the Scripture. If you have a personal computer and have one of these uh, systems on there where you can, you, can go through, you can go through 400 references in 30 minutes if, you, if you're set up for it. But whether you do it manually or what, go through and see how the Holy Spirit from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 uses the concept of the rock. Whether it's the rock at Meribah where the waters came forth and it does it twice. And those two things refer to the first and second coming of Jesus Christ if Moses hadn't blown it the second time. Um, and the stone, the stone that the builders re rejected becoming the headstone of the corner. Stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. It's not always rock-like, solid, and protective. It's also a rock of offense. Even in Daniel, or rather when Nebuchadnezzar has this strange dream, the metal image, a stone cut without hand smites the image at the feet. Again, the same image. It's interesting. They call this, uh, uh, this observation the principle of expositional constancy. That is how the Holy Spirit, even though you've got 66 books written by 40 authors over thousands of years, there's a common use of idiom, common structure, uh, uh, it evidences singular design. Stone, rock, speaking of none other than Jesus Christ. Okay. Okay. First seven verses of chapter 23 are David's last words. David's last words. Verse 
Now, these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, The man who was raised up on high, the anointed of God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel, said, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was in my tongue. This is an Old Testament declaration of what we call the doctrine of inspiration. It's developed in the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 21, 20 and 21. Acts chapter 4, verse 25. There's just three uh, uh, ten pegs in the ground, so to speak, on this issue of inspiration. That this book is supernaturally inspired. That means a lot of things to different people. The dangerous view is that, gee, it contains the Word of God. That's dangerous because that implies that some of it isn't, and we as men try to separate it. That's an invitation to disaster. It has always been historically and continues to this day. The breathtaking discovery of this book is that every detail is supernaturally inspired. And as you know, my premise is is that every number, every place name, every detail is engineered by the Holy Spirit. And when you discover that, I, I don't think there's anything. I've had a life of discovery. I've, the Lord has blessed me. I've done, I've done so many adventurous things. But of all the things that I've experienced, and there have been many, candidly, the most exciting in my life are discoveries in the Scripture. There's something breathtaking about discovering the fingerprint of the Holy Spirit in this book. The rabbis have a quaint way of talking about it. They say, speaking of the Scriptures, that we really won't understand the Scriptures until the Messiah comes. And when the Messiah comes, he will not only interpret the text, he'll interpret the very words, he'll interpret the very letters, He'll even interpret the spaces between the letters. And I used to hear that and think that that was sort of fanciful extremism. Colorful, but kind of a little off the wall. But the more I've studied, the more I'm convinced they're right. The rabbis believe even more than that. They say the Torah not only describes the creation, they believe the codes that embody the creation, are in the Torah. That's pretty wild. But uh, as an information scientist, that's really my technical background, I have to tell you I wouldn't be a bit surprised. And it's when you really recognize what I call, what's called in the trade, a high view of inspiration, that God empowered every detail in this book, in the original, obviously, through uh, translations of things, there, there's jeopardies, but, but uh, that, he, that this book is supernatural. This 40, these, these 66 books written by 40 authors of Lane and Lap are a, a, a uh, treasure hunt. You can spend the rest of your life peeling this onion and discovering one thing after another. Some of them trivial, it seems. Nothing's trivial, of course, but some of them profound, some of them just curious, but he has a he has just sprinkled all through here discoveries. And that all has meaning. The reason it can be a guide, not just for theology, but for your moment-by-moment -moment existence, 
for your day-to-day walk, whether it's one of direction or comfort or correction or exhortation, Holy Spirit will speak to you personally through this book. And uh, we have a we have a threefold three three legs on our stool as a Christian walk. Fellowship with one another. We're not to forsake the assembly. Prayer and His Word. You communicate to Him in prayer, He'll communicate right back to you in His Word. If you're in it every day, it's like manna. It's a daily deal. And it's a dialogue. It's not a monologue. It's a dialogue. Prayer is the way He enlists you in what He's doing. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His Word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said... The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who ruleth over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning and as the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, Yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he maketh it not to grow. But the worthless men shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who shall touch them must be armed with iron and with the staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. Central core of these words, of course, are chapter, verses 3 through 5. It refers to the everlasting covenant, and that's your invitation to go back and review your notes of 2 Samuel 7, verses two through, 12 through 16. And uh, also, your assignment, because we're about the end of the hour, and we'll pick up the rest of the finish up the book next time because it'll also give rise to some other studies that we'll talk about. So we'll cut it off at verse seven here. But your assignments go through, look through this these last words of David and see how much of it is prophecy. Obviously most of it is. It refers to the second coming. You need to tie these seven verses to Luke chapter one, thirty one through thirty three. Gabriel visiting Mary. What an appropriate time of the year to be looking at Luke chapter 1. But recognize as we celebrate the nativity of our Lord, I'm not saying he was born in December, I'm not going to get into that one, but we certainly can celebrate him any time we like, and we've chosen to celebrate him, his nativity, at this time. But as you do this this Christmas, and you recognize the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, be sensitive to its Jewishness. Be sensitive to the fact that Mary was given the promise that he would be, he was the son of David, and he would rule on David's throne. That's a strange idea in the Christian church. I'm intrigued with a book that uh, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum has put together called Israelology, The Missing Chunk of Systematic Theology. If you take any of the sets of books on a systematic theology, I've studied eschatology, end times, angiology, all these different subjects, there's a major missing chunk, and that's the study of Israel.
in terms of God's plan. Interesting. But as we study the nativity of this Christmas time, let's be very sensitive to him, uh, he who is the Mashiach of Israel, the Messiah. And uh, so I leave that. We leave you with this first seven verses of chapter twenty-three. Next time we will deal with uh, the roll call of David's main leaders, and um, his roster of the elite, his elite thirty, if you will. And uh, we will also deal, since we'll have some time, uh, this is going to work out quite well. I think we'll, we'll uh, have a little bit of time. We'll talk a little bit about the Temple Mount. David purchases the place of the temple, and we'll talk a little bit about that. We'll discuss how many temples there are. There are actually seven. We'll talk about the seven temples next time. That may surprise you. There are seven temples in the Scripture, referenced in the Scripture. We'll also talk about seven important things about the temple that affect you and I today, right now, as we live. So that's uh, sort of that'll be sort of our wrap up on our study of David, otherwise known as First and Second Samuel. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we just praise you above all things for your Son. Father, we thank you that you've gone to such extremes to provide so much for us. And Father, we thank you that you have provided a destiny that while it requires our perfection, you've also provided for that perfection to be provided for in him. And Father, as we become aware of the gigantic gap between where we are and where you would have us, we thank you, Father, that you have provided the bridge in the person of Jesus Christ. And Father, as we pause in this season to celebrate the gift of your Son. We would just ask you, Father, to fill us with your, your Spirit. Help us to really celebrate Jesus Christ. And give us wisdom, Father, that we might find effective ways to share the glory that is ours in Him. Help us, Father, to really make this season a spirit-centered celebration of our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray.